The House and Senate are coming back to the Hill after a two-week spring hiatus. The Senate will have a couple of members return from their own breaks, while some House reps will be taking their work on the road for what is sure to be a hearing with a lot of eyeballs on it. To find out more of what's ahead, Bloomberg government reporter Lauren Duggan. Now that they're back from this two-week spring recess, which is tradition around the, the holidays, they really are going to have to focus in on this question because there's not a lot of time left before they have to do something, whether it's short-term or long-term, and what rides with it. Those are going to be the big questions. So what we're going to see this morning is Kevin McCarthy go to Wall Street and address the New York Stock Exchange about the economy and, and things that are on his mind. I think trying to lay the groundwork here for what he and his caucus are going to do as they move into these negotiations. There there really haven't been negotiations. There's been a meeting between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy. There were the scenes at the State of the Union where they talked about some things there, and there's been some papers exchanged, whether it's the big budget request or the letter McCarthy sent. But negotiations have to happen both internally and across Pennsylvania Avenue. So we'll be looking over the next weeks and months to see what happens here, because the closer we get to the summer, the more the Pressure is really going to ratchet up. And speaking of cross-branch relations, uh, lawmakers are also going to be talking about whether or not they want to override a veto of the president, um, invoking the Congressional Review Act to block the Biden administration's rule defining water subject to environmental regulation. What is going to be happening there? Yeah, this is one of the the second rule that Congress has tried to overturn using this. Now, even though the Democrats have control of the Senate, enough Democrats have sided with Republicans to get those pieces of legislation through the two chambers. President Biden, understandably, having had his administration issued this rule, vetoed the, the legislation that would cancel it. So we will see a vote in the House. It's unlikely to be successful because there was nowhere near a two-thirds majority in that chamber for um, for that bill. So what will likely happen is that'll be the end of it. So I don't think it's the end of Congress trying to deal with the WOTUS rule. It's also tied up in the courts. So, um, you know, this will be an ongoing discussion about this piece of policy. But in terms of using the Congressional Review Act to cancel the rule, that's not going to go any further than it already has. All right. And all eyes may not be on D.C. when Congress returns. Uh, It turns out there's going to be a congressional hearing that will be off campus and it's going to be held in Manhattan related to all the uh, stuff between uh, New York D.A. Alvin Bragg and former President Donald Trump. Obviously, there's a lot going on there, but I just want to talk to you a little bit about the history of these off campus congressional hearings that happen from time to time. What makes what do you make of it? So field hearings, as they call them, are somewhat common, but they tend to not be very high profile. Maybe it's a way for a vulnerable member to convene something in their district or their state and and show that they're working and bringing you know, people to Washington and getting the views outside of Washington and bringing them back to D.C. What House Republicans have done is use these and try to make them very high profile, whether it's a trip to the border, as they've done a couple of times, including to talk about general border policy, how the Border Patrol is doing, or this one today, which will be um, – um, very much focused on Alvin Bragg, the DA in Manhattan. So it's it's a way for Congress to extend its reach and use its convening power in different places. Um, and obviously, they'll try to get the media to pay attention to what they're doing by being in a different place, maybe with some different visuals. So um, this is definitely part of the playbook I think we've seen and will continue to see as House Republicans push their oversight agenda, even as maybe some of their legislative priorities are stymied just by the dynamics of Congress versus the president right now. Well, I'd say it's a mission accomplished in getting people's attention, so I don't think you'll have any shortage of cameras there. Uh, let's talk about the Senate. We have two lawmakers, you know, one 
longstanding and one who is just getting his feet wet that are going to be returning when this session starts and also one who may be on the outs with her own party. Can you what can you tell me about Mitch McConnell, John Fetterman and Diane Feinstein? So sure. I'm John Fetterman, who's been out for a while dealing with inpatient treatment for clinical depression, is back. He did some events last week. He's going to convene a hearing this week as a brand new subcommittee chairman. So he seems to be back and and running toward the job. Um, In terms of Mitch McConnell, he's been out for a shorter amount of time, but was sidelined by an injury he sustained at a dinner in Washington last month. So he's gone through some inpatient rehab, spent time at home. He says he's coming back today and he'll be part of the, the big discussions happening too, because as a leader of the Senate Republican caucus, he has a big role there. You mentioned Dianne Feinstein, and this situation does feel trickier. She's been out for quite a while recovering from the shingles. The idea had been that she would return for this April session, but she's unable to do so and the advice of her doctors. There was pressure last week from Ro Khanna, a Democratic congressman from California, for her to retire. She's not running for re-election in 2024, but there's still you know, a good chunk of two years left for that seat. And you know, Democrats very much need that seat to get their agenda through. Um, one thing she's asked is to be temporarily taken off Senate judiciary because her absence has been felt because they haven't been able to get through ju- ju- get no, excuse me get judicial nominations through that committee and to the floor and they want a, that pipeline to keep going because it's a very important thing for Democrats in the administration and in the Senate. So I think she will face continued calls to retire at this point, um, but we'll see what happens with this replacing her on the Judiciary Committee because it's not just a snap your fingers and make it happen. Um, there may be some negotiations. Republicans may be able to slow that down. So this will be a dynamic we'll watch very closely as the Senate gets back to town and see how they handle this. Yeah. Could this spark a debate that many have been calling for a while now, especially in the Senate? You know, you talk about Mitch McConnell returning from an injury and he's been in there for a while. He's not getting any younger. Does the idea of getting some new blood in there for both parties, so to speak, do you see anything like that maybe cropping up because of these situations that have arisen? Well, term limits get bandied about every so often. You know, I feel like every decade or so, there's a real push to maybe have that discussion, but it tends to be unpopular along a lot of times with the people who would be affected by it, right? So, um, you know, voters have returned these people time and time again. Diane Feinstein won four and a half years ago, Mitch McConnell more recently. Um, and so if, if voters keep sending them, they're going to be there. And there really aren't mechanisms to remove somebody um, other than them retiring or resigning, or you can expel a member, I suppose, but that's a pretty... Um, bold, brash action that people would be reluctant to do. So I think there's there's a discussions will be had about that, um, and it's certainly brought to light in these examples and and some others from the recent past where where people did seem to be declining on the job and and how do you deal with that when you know especially when you have a fifty one forty nine chamber where every vote is so precious and, and and can really affect things when they're not there. And obviously, I imagine both chambers will be discussing the big news at the end of last week, which is the discovery of the uh, leak or the person responsible for the massive leak in the Defense Department. Uh, What are you hearing on the Hill from that? Senators are poised to get a briefing this week on that subject where they'll get to hear directly from administration officials about what happened, what the depth of the information was that was in this document beyond what you can already glean from news reports. They'll get it you know, behind closed doors and probably have a frank conversation. I think they're in the information gathering stage now, and, and we'll see whether that yields some sort of talk of legislation or greater oversight, um, what it means for you know people having access to this information. Um, but you know, I think when they're back in town, can talk about it. Um, 
I, I would expect there to be more reaction now that they're going to be back in Washington and can really, you know, get in front of the cameras, get with each other and talk about it. So I could see this pop up in a number of different areas because there are so many hearings going on with officials that there will be opportunities to ask that in open session and then behind closed doors where the, the real discussions can be had. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman with bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story. And two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. 
So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger. 
towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.